The following is a ministry of City Life Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We hope you find this teaching encouraging and instructive. Perhaps you are currently a follower of Christ or are perplexed, skeptical, or even antagonistic to Christianity. Regardless, we would love to hear from you. Please contact us at info at citylifetc.org. Thank you for listening, and please contact us if we can be of service to you. Peace be with you. As you stand, please turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 to 11 together. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade Till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God had appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Brian Bademan, that esteemed elder of a church called City Life in St. Paul, Minnesota, and also the executive director of a a very, very excellent ministry at the University of Minnesota called Anselm House, recently has required of all of his staff that they read a book called From Christendom to Apostolic Mission. He is so excited and motivated by this book and its contents that he has handed out free copies to all of the elders, ruling and teaching elders of this church as well. And that for a good cause. What we read in this book, From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, is that you essentially have two kinds of cultures to deal with. There's either the Christendom culture, or there's the apostolic age culture. 
Now, the Christendom culture, this book says, is when the church's missionary activity causes many, many people to convert to Jesus Christ and causes the fertilizing of the soil of society and the vivifying of the wider culture with values that are aligned with the truth and the goodness of God. An apostolic age culture is essentially a culture in which those things, those values that have been aligned to God's truth have completely eroded. And the church now exists on the periphery of society. It is considered irrelevant or even obsolete. Now, in a Christendom culture, the primary felt need is maintenance. Confessing Christianity is the norm. And the person who is raised up, I am simply now quoting from this book, to lead the church is often the conflict-avoiding administrator rather than the apostle. But in an apostolic age culture, the need is not for maintenance, but for the church's apostolic witness and push into society with a Christian cultural vision and way of life. So that witnessing Christ, actually in the face of hostility, becomes the norm, even martyrdom and suffering for the faith. Now, here's fact number one. We do not get to choose the sort of society we prefer. You are born into it. You may like the society in which your parents or grandparents were raised and raised you. But that doesn't mean that it's still the same society. You don't get to pick which society you prefer. Another fact that is spelled out in this book is that where we are at now, I am now reading from page 30, that in the century since the Second World War, uh, in Europe, essentially, the lights of Christendom have gone out. It has been Christendom chased from the field, not Christianity or the church, but Europe as a Christendom society. I would say in Canada, it's similar. They're just behind Europe by a few footsteps. In America, I'm now back in this group, in this book, uh, has, America has until very recently been a kind of Christendom culture, and in some places it remains so to a significant degree. But it is rapidly dissipating. I would say that is true primarily in the south of the USA, as one who has worked uh, most of his ministry years in Europe and Canada, I can say it's very different and it is very bleak and black in terms of Christendom there 
And I would say that in some parts of the USA, such as the Twin Cities, we are not far behind what has happened in Europe and in Canada with the erosion of Christian values. The big mistake, this book says, that we Christians make is to think about church and about society with a Christendom mode mentality when in fact we're already moving into or are already in an apostolic age. And that is the problem with Jonah. Jonah looked at Nineveh from the perspective of a Christendom culture and said, I'll have no part of that, when in fact Nineveh was in an apostolic age mode. And so what we have with Jonah is he, through whom God actually brought about one of the greatest revivals in all of history in this evil city called Nineveh, Jonah decides to move out, chapter 4, verse 5, from this city and to ignore it completely. The consequence is Jonah is not where God wants him to be. Eventually, Jonah is not, therefore, where Jonah wants to be. But that's been his problem in the whole book. You know, he doesn't want to be in the will of God when he says, go to Nineveh. So he goes in the opposite direction. Then he finds himself in a storm in which he doesn't want to be. Then he finds himself in a fish that swallowed him in which he doesn't want to be. And then he finds himself in Nineveh after all, and he doesn't want to be there either. And now he's stuck in the heat of the desert, and he's miserable. But that's usually what happens. When we get our perspective wrong on where God wants us to be and how God wants us to function for his sake, we end up miserable. People, I think it's important that we notice that in his misery, God did provide him with a moment of happiness. You know, you see in verse 6, it says he was exceedingly glad over the plant by the way, this is the only time in the entire book of Jonah that he's happy. And it's due to a 10 to 15 foot high plant with big leaves that gives him shade for a day. And then once that's gone, he's back into feeling miserable. It's a pathetic picture, one commentator says, of a servant of God. And I think what we can say and see in Jonah 4 today is that he would have been fulfilled with what fills God's heart with pleasure had he wholeheartedly participated with God in God's mission. And I think that's the lesson that God wants us to take from the book of Jonah today as well. You would be fulfilled with what fills God's heart with pleasure if you are wholeheartedly participating with God in God's mission. So the first thing that we want to look at today 
is that Jonah is out of tune with God's grace and he's out of touch with the lost world. And the question is, are we there also? Out of tune with God's grace and out of touch with the lost world, a world that has moved and is moving rapidly from a Christendom culture into an apostolic age culture. You will notice in verse 1 of chapter 4, Jonah is greatly displeased and he was angry. Literally, it was evil to him. What was evil to him? That God had just brought a great spiritual awakening to a wicked city of Gentiles that the Jews hated. The word actually suggests that he had a very, very strong distaste towards the work of revival. It was a conflict at heart. His heart was not in alignment with God's heart. Now what that means is this. His heart was not in alignment with the pleasures of God. His heart was not in alignment with God's longing and God's passion towards a lost world. His heart was not in alignment with God's desires for people who are miserable, poor, confused, and lost. Actually, what we could say is his affections were not in alignment with God's affections. The affections, Jonathan Edwards was so, so, so eloquent and, and insightful at pointing out that it's really our affections that drive our will. It's really our affections that move us to do what we seek to do in the will of God. We're driven by our affections. And Jonah was not driven in his affections by the affections of God. His affections were for the comfort in the desert in that moment. So we might ask ourselves the question, why? What is wrong with Jonah that he would separate himself like this from God's will to revive and awaken an entire city through the message of Jonah himself? I think one reason was and is that he had the right theology of God, but he lacked the compassion of God. You will notice in the latter part of verse 2 how Jonah actually flings into God's face these words about God. He's actually reciting Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 in the latter part of verse 2. In fact, Exodus 34, 6 and 7 does not only appear here. 
It appears in nine other locations in the Old Testament. It's almost like a Christian creed that was written for Old Testament people of God to recite, this is what our God is all about. And so Jonah's reciting this great theology, just like I would say it was Reformed theology. You know, when I say Reformed theology, I think Reformed theology is the most mature theology we can have, quoting J.I. Packer. But you can have the most mature theology. You can have all the right insights into God and not have the character of God and His compassion See, it's this compassion, this affection of compassion that that crosses cultural boundaries, that moves outside of our tight box of how we think the church should function, that sacrifices itself for the sake of others, just like Jesus did for the sake of you and me. It's compassion that drives us. It's actually what good theology should do for us when it informs us of what God is like and how beautiful He is in this amazing compassion that we want to be like Him and do like Him, even in a culture that has rejected His existence. You can have the right theology of God but lack the compassion of God. I think secondly, we can say he loved the Lord his God with all his heart, but not his neighbor as himself. And Jesus said, you know, that summarizes the entire Old Testament law. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one commandment is is just like it, and your neighbor as much as you already love yourself. If I can paraphrase that. And so this one religious teacher in, in Israel asked Jesus, according to the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, so who's my neighbor? And Jesus, in all of his wisdom, says, well, it's kind of like when this Jew gets all beat up. And then who is the good guy that actually serves him? Well, the good guy that actually ends up helping the poor battered Jew is somebody from the people that Jews hate and hate the Jews back. A Samaritan. And what Jesus is pointing out is that when we love God with all our hearts, what that is to translate into is that we love people that others devalue. That maybe even our own kind of people devalue. Like people from Central or Latin America, or black people, or Asian people, or African people, or if you're from any of those people, white people, or Jewish people, or Arab people, or whoever people. And the question that 
this particular point raises for you and for me is when you walk down the street and you see one of these people that are so different from you, do you feel a distaste or does your heart burn with the love of God that they too might come to discover his beauty and his grace? And when someone from those other kind of people moves into your neighborhood, do you sneer and think the neighborhood is going to pot? Or does your heart get all excited because now you have an opportunity to reach out to somebody who's very different from you with the grace that has changed your life? Where does your heart, where are your affections at? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and that stranger, that other person as much as yourself? I think that was Jonah's second problem and why he failed so miserably in an apostolic age culture that God had called him into. And I think the third reason that, that Jonah was just way off the tracks here is that he felt that his personal reputation was being destroyed by God. See, he had prophesied destruction. He had prophesied the wrath of God upon these dogs that have been so evil and that have caused so much pain worldwide. And what does God do? He gives a spiritual awakening. John Calvin, that great theologian and commentator from the 1500s, writes at this point, because he was unwilling to appear as a vain and lying prophet, Jonah has separated himself from the city. See, Jonah is probably afraid that what has happened, he, the prophet of Israel, who had announced the judgment of God upon all these evil people, he would now lose face back home in Israel. They would say, okay, he got that one wrong. They will say, okay, I think his pastoring years are over. He's no good more in the preaching department. And I'm sure that Jonah was afraid that maybe his career now is over. And so God asks the question, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? He asks it twice. And the second time, Jonah even has the gall to say, yes, I should be angry. People, I have to tell you that uh, in the last week as I've studied this passage, this is the point where I felt in myself a deep conviction. And I'm wondering if you might also. This is the part where this passage goes like an arrow to my own heart. Anger. 
anger over things that just aren't working out according to my expectations. You know, anger. I'm not talking about righteous indignation. I'm talking about anger, selfish anger, self-centered anger. It's such a cause of so many sicknesses and anxieties in our lives. The anger over God and others and the world not cooperating with my plan. The anger over people not supporting my agenda. The anger over facing the great possibility that I'm going to lose face if this doesn't work out. You know what I'm talking about? Do you ever feel that? Early last week, I had the joy, Susan and I both had the joy of meeting up with a friend in Germany, a friend that I know from my teenage years. Actually, he wasn't my friend. He was my older brother's friend. And we were traveling in Germany with my older brother and his wife who arranged that he would meet his buddy from back in his teenage years. And so we ended up sitting at the same table and having a conversation with the doctor, Eberhard Berch. And wow, what a career this man has had. He's 75 now, but you know, he became a university professor known all over Germany in math and physics, and then also in uh, inform informatic, whatever that is in English. And uh, then he became politically involved, and, you know, he had a tremendous career, tremendous career. He was known, he was popular. And then, you know, in the conversation, I asked him, so how's your health these days, Eberhard? And he assumed that I knew about his years of bad health with asking that question. So he just opened up and said, well, you know what actually happened when I was in the clinic for two and a half years in deepest depression. And I'm thinking, no, I don't know what happened. Is that what happened? And he went on to say, you know, they gave me all these medications and that was good and I needed it and there was all this counseling and that was good and I needed it. But you know what, years later, when I'm healthy again, I get this perspective that actually what went wrong back then can be summarized in one word ambition and we said what ambition he said yes I was just a few months away from retirement and everybody in this country knows me and reveres me and esteems me and suddenly I realize that in a few months it's all over and I will become a nobody who does nothing And that brought, in me up, brought up in me such an anger that I just went into deep depression. And so, you can be angry. You can be angry about all kinds of things. I can be angry. I've been angry about all kinds of things that just don't cooperate with my agenda or expectations and God 
And God comes into that anger with the Jonah question, do you have a right to be angry? And the answer is no. And you know why? Because even that little moment of happiness, that castor oil plant event, was by the grace of God. He appointed that plant to grow. And he appointed the worm to chew up the root so it would die. And God appointed the big blast of hot air through the desert to make Jonah even more miserable. And God is the one who's doing with Jonah what God wants to do with Jonah. It's not that God is failing Jonah. Jonah has failed God. We're called to serve him, not to be angry about the things he doesn't give us. So I think that was Jonah's problem. I love this comment from James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary. He says, It is possible to obey God, but to do it with such a degree of unwillingness and anger that your obedience is no better than disobedience. You see, it's possible to be a Christian and to be so wound up with the castor oil plants of life that should give us happiness that we completely come out of tune with God's grace and out of touch with the lost world. So that brings us now to the second and final consideration from our text. While Jonah was out of tune and out of touch, our God is in tune with grace and in touch with a lost world. The last verse of the book, in verse 11, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. What a way to end a book. But it's a rhetorical question that probably left Jonah so convicted that he ended up writing this book as a form of repentance. So who are the 120,000? Well, there's one theory that says children seven and under who don't yet know their right hand from their left. I mean, by seven, I knew, but I guess in that society, maybe they didn't. Which actually reminds me of my grandson, who's always putting the wrong shoe on the right foot. You know? It's like, and he's going on six, and he still does it. So maybe he's of Ninevite descent. The other theory is that this is simply referring to the ignorance of the Ninevites. Now, whichever view you take, and I think in the end it really doesn't matter, I am prone to think that since Nineveh is twice referred to as a great city, those commentators are correct in their assessment who say it probably was a city of about 600,000 people 
which had 120,000 children under the age of seven and a whole bunch of pets. <laughs> like, you know, we have dogs in every, almost in every house, and they must have too, plus their pets weren't just dogs, they had cows and they had... The point simply is that God has his eyes on the smallest to the largest. God has his eyes even on the pets. God has his eyes on the most important to the least of these, plus the cattle. And it's just a, 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 an emphatic way of God saying to Jonah, I have great compassion for all the details of a lost and evil society. Don't you get it? And now we come back with the question, but God, how can you be like this? How can you be so different from Jonah? How can you be so different from me? I think one reason is that God loves people and the majority of people live in cities. Now, at another conference, I will go into great detail. In fact, maybe this afternoon at 4.30 I will, but just note that. The second point is that God's history of redemption is wrapped up in the history of the city. Just note that. I'll maybe go into more detail at 4.30 this afternoon or at the conference in February back in Canada. But I want to get to the third point because the clock is telling me I need to be there. And that is this. It is God's nature to save people who are sinful and so societies beset with and suffering from evil. It's his nature. Already back in chapter 1, verse 2, God said, the evil of Nineveh has come up before me. That's why I'm sending you there, Jonah. You see, God knows this city is in an apostolic mode culture. It needs the gospel. And what we now discover is that the words that Jonah flung into the face of God in the latter part of verse 2 actually are true. They are the nature of God. What does this tell us about God? Well, it says, first of all, that God is gracious and merciful. That's why he is responding or has responded through the gospel in Nineveh to bless that city with an awakening instead of judgment. God does not act on the basis of what we deserve. And see, I love this. What is grace? One theologian once said, grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. And mercy is when God withholds from us the hell we do deserve. What a God. What a God of grace and mercy. He is, furthermore, slow to anger. He has a right to be angry. Even the smallest 
sin. He has a right to be angry towards that. But his anger is a patient anger. It is long-suffering, which means he's willing to suffer long before he strikes. He is slow to anger. He's not like the Roman gods or the Greek gods that you'd take one wrong step and they, in their rage, just try to wipe you out. No, God is slow to anger. And then this, I love this. He's abounding in steadfast love. The Hebrew word is the word chesed. One of the most popular words in the Bible. But there's no one English word that adequately expresses the meaning of chesed. It includes kindness. Kindness, the kindness of a long-suffering God, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that would lead us to repentance. Kindness. It includes loyalty and faithfulness to his promises. If he's made the promise, he will stick to his promise, even if it causes him death. And it did. It refers to his initiating love when there's no reason for there to even be love. If there's every reason for there to not be love, he will initiate the love. And his love is unfailing. As I thought about his unfailing love this week, I thought of one of my favorite films, Legends of the Fall. And that moment between Tristan and Susanna, she's fallen in love with Tristan. And he is telling her that he needs to go away now. He has work that he has to get done to atone for his sins. And she starts pleading with him, please don't go. Please don't go. And he says, I must go. And she says, okay, if you must go, remember this. I love you, and I will wait for you, even if it means forever. And Tristan goes away, but it's not just for a few months. goes on for years. Meanwhile, Susanna has decided to marry Tristan's brother Alfred and have a family. And when Tristan finally comes back and he hears that she's married his brother, he goes to visit her and he said, but Susanna, I thought you said you would wait for me even if waiting means forever. And Susanna says, but forever was too long. And it reminds me of Jesus, of whom it is said in John 13, verse 1, he loved his disciples to the end. To the end. He loves you to the very end. 
How can you know and be sure that He does? Because His covenant love towards us is such that He has bound Himself to the promises of God to be your God, to be gracious and merciful and long-suffering and abounding in steadfast love until the end. And he has shown that to you once and for all in that he bound himself not just to the promises of God but to the cross of Christ through which he is saying, I am willing to give up my own life so that you might have it so that you might experience the grace and the mercy and the steadfast love of God. You see, Jesus is the one who fulfilled these characteristics of our God. He is the greater Jonah. He is the true and obedient Jonah. And as we live in Christ and participate in Christ, we begin to participate in the nature of God. And as we participate in the nature of God, we get so overwhelmed in our amazement and adoration of who God is and how God is, especially towards an evil society, that we become more and more what we love. Him. And that's the tragedy of Jonah. He would have been fulfilled with what fills God's heart with pleasure had he wholeheartedly continued with God in God's mission. But he was willing to find his happiness in castoral plants. Now, don't get me wrong, castor oil plants, whatever that translates into in your life, whether it's your career or your kids or your spouse or your, your neighborhood, your house, your car, whatever your castor oil plant is, it's important, but it has been provided by God. Why? Because God wants you to focus on the higher things God wants you to focus on what fills God's heart with pleasure. God wants you to focus on the fact that we are living in an apostolic age where our witness to others is what can bring them life and to know this great God in Jesus Christ. And so my question to you, church, is are we ready? to be these people? Are we ready to be like greater Jonas who see the work of God in an apostolic age and stop pretending that it's still as great as it was 70 or 100 years ago and we realize that God has actually have had us born at a time such as this when the church and its people are called into an apostolic age culture in order to testify 
through our lives and by our lips how great the grace of God is. Maybe what we need to do, starting with myself, is to get in touch with the heart of Jesus. And when we do, then we get ourselves in tune with God's passion for the world and in touch with God's grace for the lost. Lord Jesus, we pray that these words from your word would sink deeply into our hearts, that whatever our circumstances in life are at this time, we would be people who never get tired of praising you for your grace and compassion and your steadfast love. And as we revel in what you are, we pray that you use us we who fail so often, use us in our humility and use us in our repentance to, in fact, let our neighbors know, whoever they might be, of a wonderful God who makes sense out of everything and whose grace breaks through anything in order to give us the fullness of his heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a ministry of City Life Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We hope you were encouraged by this teaching. Thank you for listening, and please contact us at infocitylifetc.org at if we can be of service to you. Peace be with you.